Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. As of 2022, more than half of the U.S. population was women. But that's nothing new. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, America's females have outnumbered males since 1946. What is new, however, is a new White House initiative dedicated to research on women's health, a first ever announced a mere three weeks ago on November 13th. Women's health encompasses many things, yet the reproduction process is one that's particularly poorly understood. Why is that the case? How does it fit into a larger context of gaps in women's health research? And how does engineering and material science help decrease maternal and fetal death and long-term medical complications? Joining us to talk about those questions, we have Michelle Oyen. Michelle Oyen is Associate Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Washington University. Michelle, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thank you very much. So... When you learned how poorly funded women's health research has been over the decades, was that a surprise at all to you? It was, and I think it was a surprise to a lot of people. There was a landmark paper published in 2020 that showed that uh, medical conditions that affect men are disproportionately better funded than either things that affect women more or that are neutral. So this has been a long time going um, with the National Institutes of Health. Mm -hmm. And as far as that disproportion goes, it's not just a little bit, right? It's not a little bit in terms of dollars, but it's also not a little bit when you normalize it according to the burden of health conditions. So that's actually one of the things that is a a big difference in uh, women's health is there are a lot more chronic conditions that can affect someone for a long period of time. There's a lot more autoimmune disease, for example. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just the dollar amount. It's the dollar amount as prorated by what they call um, burden uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of, of the effect. Yeah. And why is it the, the case that it, it's been so poorly funded, women's health research? Well, until 30 years ago this year, there was no requirement that women be included in clinical trials or in research in general. And even when the landmark legislation came out 30 years ago that said women have to be included in clinical trials, there were still exceptions for things like women of reproductive age, which is a very large proportion of women. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was also an exception for cells, for laboratory animals. So there was still uh, a number of reasons why women didn't have to be part of the medical research landscape nearly as uh, evenly, um, and that has taken a very long time to change. And I think really the attention on this subject has been almost, it's been exponentially growing maybe in the last two or three years. Mm -hmm. What do you think accounts for that? 
Well, I would say greater awareness. I think there are a lot more people like me talking about this topic. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that some of this hard data has come out, like the funding in the NIH, there was also another paper about women's health um, inventions and how the fact that most patents are not made by women is associated with the fact that there aren't as many innovations in women's health. And that also came out in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, that was in Science Magazine. So I think things like that have gotten a lot of attention um, and just basically shining light on a topic that just had been under the radar for a very long time. Right. And although it was under the radar, I mean, there's certainly been real world effects of this lack of investment in, uh, in research on women's health. What are some of those consequences uh, of that failure? Well, we just don't know a lot of things about pregnancy in particular. I think pregnancy, you know, that's my area of research. So I'm um, I'm speaking about the thing that I know best. Mm -hmm. uh, but we just don't know as much about pregnancy and how it works. You know, so much of it is happening in a case, um, you know, prior to women even knowing that they're pregnant. There's a lot of really important things that happen in the first trimester. And there are not very good animal models for human reproduction. Um, it's not always acknowledged, but mm -hmm. a very important fact that um, there are very few uh, animals that uh, have menstruation and there's very few animals that undergo menopause. Mm -hmm. So those are two of the very important factors in a human woman's life. And there are very few animal models for those processes. And so that's just part of the bigger piece of our poor understanding of women's reproductive health. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also just all of the factors where things disproportionately affect women differently, like osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease. These are things that are recognized to be different in the way that they present in women. The symptoms are different. The, um, the consequences are different. Hip fractures in women, of course, can, can be fatal. Mm. Um, and osteoporosis in women is far more common than in men. Right. And some of these conditions, I mean, we've talked on this show um, about menopause and the, the gaps that exist among different communities of women. How has the inadequacy of studying women's health affected certain communities more? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking in particular about black maternal health insofar as um, the reproductive process is concerned. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, the keys there is maternal mortality. So the maternal mortality rate in the black community is about three times what it is in the white community. Um, but it's also just as bad in the Native American community as it is in the black community. Mm -hmm. And so those are two groups that have, um, have been ignored by society in some ways, and certainly clearly have some health needs that are um, unique. And I think part of, of what's challenging about this is we don't know how to separate out uh, the social effects, the uh, things to do with economics, things to do with access to health care. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the things that comes up a lot. Black women sometimes enter pregnancy care later in the pregnancy. So if someone doesn't go to the doctor until they're in the second trimester of pregnancy instead of in the first trimester, then they're not getting that prenatal care from as early of a time point. Mm -hmm. So you have mentioned, Michelle, that your work is focused on reproductive process. Um, and the research that you have done has focused very specifically on preterm birth. What is it that that has involved? 
So I started doing this research more than 20 years ago, and our first topic that we were very interested in is premature rupture of the fetal membranes. So that's the, the breaking of waters, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the release of liquid, it's usually something that happens about the time that labor starts. Um, and that's something that can happen way too early. And it's very difficult to predict. So there's no good way of predicting when that's going to happen. But that's a major cause of preterm births that affects about 3% of all pregnancies and is responsible for about 30 to 40% of preterm births. And that's clearly a mechanical process, right? The water's breaking is a membrane rupturing. It's a fracture process. It's from my perspective as an engineer, it's a very well-defined mechanical process. And so we started taking samples from the fetal membranes of women after they had given birth, just as a function of different gestational ages to measure how the strength of that membrane varies throughout the pregnancy to try to understand better why it ruptures sometimes but not others at a time that's way too early for either viability of the child or for um, a healthy pregnancy in terms of the, the fetus being fully developed. Mm -hmm. And we are speaking with you because because of the work that you are doing that is specific to engineering. So in what you have just described um, to us, how is it that engineering comes into play around pregnancy and childbirth? So the work that I was just describing, we were taking the membranes from the pregnancy and we were measuring their properties using the same sort of equipment that you would use to measure the stiffness and the strength of a piece of plastic film, right? Mm -hmm. So something that is, is a clear engineering approach. So the properties of materials, um, we were using the approaches from traditional properties of materials, and that's my background. I have training in material science, and we were using that same equipment to measure forces and deformations in those fetal membranes in order to establish their strength and their stiffness, just like you would of any sort of an engineering material. And that's just one example of a way that engineering can be used in women's health. We can measure the properties. We've also done work measuring, say, the stiffness of the uterus and how it changes in pregnancy versus non-pregnant patients. And those specimens come from hysterectomies mm. where the uterus has been removed, which is a surprisingly common procedure. Yes. <laughs> I, I can relate to that. And it's not something that a lot of people talk about. So with what you are doing um, as a, um, a biophysicist leading WashU Center for Women's Health Engineering, um, you are applying sort of or putting together a combination of inorganic materials and real human cells, correct? Yeah. Uh, so we take, we make artificial matrices. So we try to take a, a real tissue is a combination of the cells, the biological living cells, and the extracellular matrix, which is the material that cells make, like proteins and sugars that um, support the cells and provide the sort of framework that cells sit on. And so when we do what's called tissue engineering, we make an artificial matrix, and then we can put real human cells onto that matrix to 
try to study how they respond if, for example, they're put into an environment that has a different stiffness than what would be normal. Mm -hmm. And that's a way that we can understand what's called mechanobiology, um, understand how cells respond to their mechanical and physical environment. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the applications then, Michelle, of your research? Like, how might it be drawn from in a real world setting? I think we think at this point that this is primarily about better ways to study pregnancy. So we're not trying to make an artificial uterus to implant into somebody. That's not what we're doing with tissue engineering. We're trying mm -hmm. to make model systems that could be used to study these processes better. And part of the reason that it's really exciting to be in this area right now is that the Food and Drug Administration passed a new set of laws at the end of last year, so in late 2022 called the FDA Modernization Act. And basically what they said is, we recognize that there are not good animal models for everything. And so therefore we're going to allow you to make organs on chips or tissue engineered models or computer models. Another thing that we do a lot with engineering uh, to make computer models of, of some of these processes. And so these sorts of models that are not just animal research are now accepted as evidence to the Food and Drug Administration for new drugs or new medical devices. And so I think that's really going to change this whole playing field in terms of studying engineering processes and using engineering tools and techniques in medical research related to women's reproductive health. Mm -hmm. Now, part of the reason we're talking with you today is a recent announcement. We talked about this in the introduction to this segment, and that was the White House Initiative so it was just in November that President Joe Biden announced the first ever White House initiative on women's health research. And that effort will be led by First Lady Jill Biden and the White House Gender Policy Council. What does it mean, Michelle, to have the White House looking into women's health overall? I think I would say guardedly, optimistically, that it's very exciting to have this get attention. Um, it's not actually the first time there's been any news from the White House on this, because there has been some work on maternal health um, from the Vice President, Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a series of bills, um, only one of which has passed to date, but there was a maternal health momnibus, which was a set of bills going through Congress. Mm -hmm. And Kamala Harris has had some sort of events at the White House talking about maternal health. Health, but definitely taking it to the president and to the first lady's office brings it up to a new level. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it draws attention to the fact that that women's health is a combination of both reproductive and non-reproductive health. And mm -hmm. I think both of those things are important and both of those things are understudied and need to be studied more, right. not one at the exclusion of the other. And whenever something like this, an announcement like this, an effort like this goes out into the world, I mean, there are many things that we can hope for. Do you have any concerns, though, about, um, about how successful this is going to be and what some of the, um, the practical challenges will be? Yeah, I mean, I think there's 
there's always practical challenges with implementing something like this. And at the moment, all we have to go on is the fact that there's an announcement and a comment period. So I've signed up for the email list for this White House initiative, and I'm waiting to hear more about it. But there was a 45-day comment period instituted, and so we don't really know what it's going to be yet. Mm -hmm. But in the background, there was also a big effort that I was a part of this year, um, a partnership between the Gates Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. Um, looking at making an opportunity map for women's health. And that was also released just in October. And in conjunction with that, there have been some new calls for proposals, so opportunities for funding for research from the Gates Foundation and from NIH on these topics in women's health. And so I would say in that regard, the presidential announcement is, is one of several recent and exciting things that have happened to draw further attention to this topic. And of course, anytime you're talking about research, increased funding is going to be important in order to get more people looking at these problems and more people making um, advancements with research that can be translated into clinical practice, into new devices, new drugs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that people, I guess, have the most uh, proximity to are specific uh, diagnoses or issues. So you'd mentioned hysterectomies earlier, but miscarriages and other reproductive health issues, they're things that are very common, and yet they are not discussed very much. Um, as an engineer, you know, you've obviously made it a goal to talk openly about reproductive medical health concerns, as well as to be working on it. Why is it important to you to bring these things to you know, a brighter or broader light? The only way that people realize how big these problems are is if we talk about them. And I'm going to go back to your example of hysterectomies because most people don't realize almost 50% of women have their uterus removed before age 65. Mm -hmm. That's a shocking statistic, almost half of women. Um, and that's for all different reasons. There can be uh, fibroids, which are non-cancerous tumors in the uterus. There yes. can be endometriosis, which is pain and excessive bleeding. There can be gynecologic cancers. There can be problems associated with pregnancy. So there are a large number of reasons that people's organs are being removed. And it's not something that people tend to talk about. And as you said, I've made it my absolute uh, goal in life to talk about these things as much as possible to see if I can floor a room every time I go into it with the fact that 10% of babies are preterm, with the fact that the maternal mortality rate is rising, with the fact that so many women have a uterus removed for various different reasons. I think, you know, we just have to get over the shame and embarrassment of talking about some of these uh, organs and really just bring them into general conversation. And this is where I get very excited about mm -hmm. the next generation because they don't have the hangups I do. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> the young students that I work with in the university, the young undergraduates and graduate students, people in their 20s, you know, they have a totally different background and have been raised in a different environment in America, and they are not shy about talking about this at all. Mm -hmm. And Michelle, just in our final minute, 
You moved to St. Louis for this job at WashU in January 2022, and that was just a few months before the Dobbs decision led to abortion being effectively outlawed in Missouri. This is a state where maternal mortality rates are increasing and where preterm birth rates are alarmingly high. So what does it mean to you, again, sort of in this last minute, to be doing this work in this place and at this moment in time? I just keep reminding myself that this is why we need this work more than ever, and this is why we need this work here more than ever, and that's very motivational to me. Mm -hmm. Michelle Oyen is biophysicist, and she leads the WashU Center for Women's Health Engineering. Thank you again. Thank you. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.